From the silver screen to the GM screen, Never Say Die asks, what can we learn from movies to enhance our role-playing game experience? This season, we're all about Kids on Bikes movies, where kids 18 years of age or younger get themselves into and out of trouble and keep their agency while doing so, usually in a specific location, which is essential to the plot. I'm Rafe Telsch, film critic. And I'm Drew Meyer, gaming enthusiast. And today we're talking 2017's It Chapter 1, based on Stephen King's novel of the same name. The screenplay was written by Chase Palmer, Carrie Fukunaga, and Gary Dauberman. It was directed by Andy Muschietti and stars Jaden Lieberhauer, Bill Skarsgård, Jeremy Ray Taylor, Sophia Lillis, Finn Wolfhard, Wyatt Olaf, Chosen Jacobs, and Jack Dylan Grazer, among others. Now, this conversation will contain spoilers for the 2017 film, the 1990 TV miniseries version, and the original 1986 novel. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. You have been <laughs> warned. Spoilers! Spoilers! I mean, <laughs> I don't know how much we're going to go into the 1990 TV version and the novel, but you know what? I figured to throw that in there just in case. I have a few things to talk about with those, so I know I, I think... Sure. Uh, yeah, I think absolutely. Blanket spoiler I, warning is a good thing. I was very much looking forward to watching the 1990 version uh, just to refresh, and um, it's not streaming anywhere that, unless I have to pay for it, and I... And I, I've seen like so many copies at Goodwill, and I was like, oh, well, I'll just go over and pick one up, because that's how the universe works, and they're all gone. It's so. on HBO Max. <laughs> okay, there we go. There's a couple of scenes that like really stick out in my memory, but that's sure. not what we're talking about now. No, but first we should talk about, you know, we are a movie podcast, we are a, a role-playing game podcast, we are a podcast. So, uh, Drew, what new movies, role-playing games, or podcasts have you experienced since we last recorded that you want to bring up for our wonderful listeners? Well, let's take a peek behind the curtain, shall we? Uh, our episode, at the time of recording, um, our last episode dropped three days ago. Right. Uh, so it hasn't had a lot of time in between to, to watch things. I've watched one, and I would like to uh, recommend a second one that kind of happened. Um, the one I watched was a documentary that came out last year called Doctor Who Am I, and it is about the writer, the script writer for the 1996 American Doctor Who movie. Now, this mm. was my first televised episode of Doctor Who that I ever saw. Prior to that, I had only read the comic books. Um, I had never watched an episode of the classic series. So as far as I was concerned, this was Doctor Who. They never made another episode for, well, you know, 1996 came and went. No new episode showed up until 2005. But the movie is not, was not, still in some circles not regarded very highly. And so this gentleman, Matthew Jacobs, <laughs> didn't go to conventions, didn't really mention it on their resume. I mean, you know, they've done other things. They wrote The Emperor's New Groove. So they're good, right? But this is a kind of a look of them coming back to fandom and then taking a look at fandom itself. And it's a really beautiful and touching look at just fandom in general. Not just, I mean, not, you know, it's Doctor Who, but kind of fandom across the board. I was there when they filmed several of the scenes, several of the conventions. Uh, I'm not in the, the movie, though I did help it with it on a Kickstarter, but um, no, finally got around to watching it and really, really enjoyed it. It's very cool. So I, I liked that a lot. I'm going to tack on some shameless self-promotion to that uh, because I didn't realize he also wrote uh, The Emperor's New Groove. Uh, my other podcast did an episode on The Emperor's New Groove where we went quite in depth on the history behind that film mm -hmm. and talked about its original incarnation as Kingdom of the Sun and uh, a short documentary uh, that Disney does not want you to see called The Sweatbox, 
that is sort of yeah. about what happened with that film. Uh, it was filmed by Sting's wife because Sting originally was doing the music when it was a musical, typical Disney film. Uh, right. So that episode of uh, Have Not Seen This, as well as Check Out the Sweatbox and that kind of stuff for some really interesting attachment to that side of things. Yeah, Jacobs wrote the final draft. So what you see in the film is his script. So, you know, many, many other people took shots at that script. Kind of like the movie we're going to talk about today. <laughs> yes, that is true. Yeah, and depending on how much we go into it. Yeah, a lot of people have attempted. This is one of those films that tried to get made for almost a decade before it, it came out. But that's it. How about you? Have you gotten a chance to watch anything? It's been so, as you pointed out, our, our most recent episode dropped three days ago. But what you didn't point out was we had only recorded it three days before that. So it's actually been less than a week since we sat down and recorded. Uh, so no, I have not. I mean, other than, you know, finishing up TV shows that, you know, are kind of must-see TV for me. So like Mandalorian and Picard, you know, which ended as the week that we're recording this. Uh, so lots of season finales. I did sit down and start watching the It 1990 miniseries, but I didn't yes. unfortunately get very far in it. But it did remind me, you know, that was for the longest time that was the version of it that was out there so as i said i think there's definitely some things worth talking about with that but uh let's go ahead and get into the movie then we always start with the elevator pitch which is kind of a simplified version of the movie's plot uh drew this was your pick so we're getting into the elevator pitch it to me man all right so i know a totally unique experience so a group of kids led by a boy whose brother has recently died go on a quest to find a dead body uh that sounds a lot like the last movie we did which was my pick okay well, how about, I'll try this one. How about seven kids travel through the underground to save the city that they love and find the greatest treasure of all, friendship? Uh, isn't that the very first movie we did for this podcast? <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, how about this? Every 27 years, a supernatural force feeds on the fear and bodies of small towns' children, and it's up to a group of kids to face their fears and fight back. All right, that sells me on it, although definitely a far horrific concept compared to all the other movies we have discussed so far in this season. True. And the other thing, too, I could basically, I can say with, you know, the first one, it being uh, Stand By Me, the second one being Goonies, it does have similarities to those. Sure. But the reason it has similarities to those is the creators of It Chapter 1 looked at both Stand By Me, looked at Goonies, and looked at other kids on bikes films to get their inspiration. You know, there's clearly some Stranger Things in there as well. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's Stranger Things in there just with the fact that film Finn Wolfhard is in both of those. But yeah. That's, I mean, it almost feels like there's Stranger Things in everything. Speaking of Picard, there's some Stranger Things in that, which is kind of odd, but you know. Okay, we'll talk about that off mic, but... <laughs> All right, uh, Drew, why did you pick this wonderful movie? So uh, this was always going to get picked by one of us. Uh, and having not seen it until very recently, I was hesitant to pick it early on. Had I watched it early on, I, I probably would have picked it much sooner than, than I did. But just from reading everyone else's reviews, it made the top of almost everyone's kids on what, what are considered kids on bikes movies. And so just reading brief synopses, I was like, okay, this sounds perfect. This sounds great. But I just never got a chance to, to see it. Once I did, I was like, well, this has to be my very next pick. And, and it was. It had actually fallen off my list of movies to pick for the podcast. So I'm glad you picked it because I think I had written it off as being too horror. Because mm -hmm. it is rated R. It is a very rated R film. And I just kind of been sticking more to the PG-13 and lower rated films. So I, again, I'm glad you picked it. I think it was a great, yeah. 
great yeah. thing to pick. Drew, is this a Kids on Bikes movie? Um, Rafe, this is such a Kids on Bikes movie. And uh, now we'll we'll talk about how much of a Kids on Bikes movie uh, when we get to our ratings. But I'm gonna just go ahead and kind of draw this line in the sand now. I'm gonna say that it chapter one is to Kids on Bike horror as the Goonies is to Kids on Bikes adventure. So if that gives you an idea of where I'm leaning yeah. towards uh, rating and just general appreciation of this film, there you go. All right. So when did you watch this film for the first time? I can tell you exactly when I watched it. I watched it on March 10th of this year on a plane to Ecuador. Um, <laughs> so I I watched it. This is this is one of the films that I, I the five films I watched on a plane in my four inch screen with a, you know, not a screaming child next to me, but um, a small teenager who every once in a while would look over and go, oh, Dad! Um, so I definitely didn't see it the way it was intended to be seen. I wish I could have seen it in the theater. I wish I could have seen it with an audience because I think, I think I would have been more frightened by it. Uh, mm-hmm. While it is a, it, it's a spooky film, it can be very frightening and it can certainly be kind of gross. Watching it, knowing what happens, but having seen it on a small screen with a lot of chaos happening all around it didn't affect me the way I wanted it to. So I rewatched it for this episode uh, and I gotta say that I liked it even more, and my appreciation for the craft in which it was made increased uh, quite a bit. How about you? When did you see it? No, 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 no. I gotta ask first, because you watched this on a plane. Did you say to anyone around you that you were all floating? That you all float <laughs> up there? <laughs> I did not. Uh, I Missed opportunity. I think it's fine. Um, we're all wearing masks and uh, <laughs> trying not to talk to one another. So... Uh, Fair Agreed. Enough. Now, have you seen the 1990 made-for-TV version? The, the I saw both episodes as they aired in 1990. I taped both of them off the television, and I watched both of them a lot growing up. Um, it was one of those safe-to-watch-at-sleepover horror films, because while it was creepy... I don't think it was particularly scary. No. Um, and so, it, you know, made-for-TV, they did... A, I think they... Having... Yeah, anyway. Yeah, I, I, I'd seen it. I assume you'd seen it as well. Yeah, so uh, to answer the question about the movie, I, I saw it in the theater opening weekend. Mm-hmm. Loved seeing it in theater. Scared the hell out of me. And I don't mm-hmm. usually get that frightened at horror movies, but just there was something about uh, the presentation of it mm-hmm. that, that really made it frightening. And have rewatched it a couple of times on my home theater uh, and have had similar experiences there. You get a good surround sound system, you, you watch it on a decent sized screen, and it's a great experience. Yeah. Um, Agreed. The made-for-TV version, yeah, same thing. I, I watched it uh, as it broadcast, but I also videotaped it so I could watch it later. And I was a huge fan of the novel. Like, I had mm-hmm. read the novel. And so the miniseries, like, there were a, there was a lot to like about it. I loved the cast. I mean, Jonathan Brandis was, like, the hot boy at the time as far mm-hmm. as, like, TV franchises went. So, like, I dug that he was in it. And, you know, Harry Anderson, I was a big fan of him playing, you know, grown-up Richie Tozer. But I, at the same time, my my complaint about it, and I guess this is kind of going into where we're hitting it with spoilers, is I always felt like uh, it got to the climax of the miniseries and they ran out of money. And so they just had a big rubber spider for everybody to kick and beat on instead of actually capturing some kind of... Uh, in the book, it is a very big climactic battle, but it's also very cerebral. And I don't mm. know how you capture that. They didn't really ma- manage to capture it 
for the film either, but they went a different direction, so at least it felt like a climactic battle. So yeah, I, I saw the miniseries, I saw the movie opening weekend, I've read the novel. I think you said last episode you have read the novel. Yeah, uh, when I was in middle school, like so 10 or 11 I definitely, I read it. You know, it was that time where kind of we were all reading. It was several years after it had come out, but I, I definitely read it. I will also say this at one point, speaking of the uh, TV movie Climax, I have had a conversation with Harry Anderson about, about the filming of those scenes, about kicking and beating the giant spider. Oh, really? Yeah, I'll tell you, I'll tell you about my Anderson's experience. Uh, there's quite a few of them. He used to live in the same town as me for a while, and he used oh. to be an avid shopper at my comic book store. So uh, it's good. he was good people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, I, I should also admit, uh, the last three nights my bedtime reading has been Stephen King's It. Really? How cool. Yeah. I didn't even consider doing that. So did you um, come for any specific scenes or, like, flip the chapters or... Or just just sit down and start reading? I had started rereading it a couple of years ago and had just kind of put it down. It was on my e-reader. So I just reopened it back up where I had uh, left off. And I, oddly enough, it's like, it's a scene that is not in the movie where I picked it back up, where Bill and Richie have a confrontation with it when it appears as the I was a teenage werewolf. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and then the next thing is the blood in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Which is, Bev has a mom in the novel, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is yeah. noticeably not in the movie. <laughs> well, there's a lot of stuff uh, with Bev in the novel that isn't in the movie, and, yeah. and I think it, the movie is better for it. Yeah. I think we're all better for it. You had a note on here. Do you want to talk about this? I mean, I got a couple of notes on here. Um, well, we're talking about other versions of it with the miniseries and the novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so just a couple of things, just doing some research in the last day or so. Um, I really like the fact that the creative team mentions that they, I'll just hear the quotes. Uh, he like talks about drawing inspiration from eighties films, such as the howling, the thing, the Goonies stand by me and near dark, uh, and just the influence of Steven Spielberg. So it does have a kind of a dark shadowy Amblin quality, which is the thing that we are looking for in here. Um, right. Specific references to uh, Stand By Me, I like, Stranger Things. And then there was one that I had never heard of before, and it just kind of blew my mind in that, you know, we talk about the 2017 version, we talked about the 1990 version. What I didn't know is in 1998, there was a 52-episode miniseries that ran the entire year in India where they have a Hindi version of it uh, called, uh, it's it's W-O-H, I think it's pronounced Wa, and I have watched maybe 10 minutes on YouTube of a random episode. And it is unique. It's unique. And I, and I think if that's the kind of thing that really interests you, and, and I would definitely give it a, a shout out because it's, it's pretty cool. I did not know this existed either, which is why I yeah. found it interesting enough for us to, to chat about. All right. Well, we always talk about the movie in terms of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Before we get into that, let's talk real quick about the ratings. It does sit at 86% on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score of 84%. So it's a pretty well-liked movie. I think considering that at one point in time, it was the highest grossing R-rated film of all time. Right. And one of the highest grossing films of the last decade, which is you know saying a lot when you have these billion-dollar Marvel franchises that an audience score of only 84% felt a little low to me, you know? Yeah. I, maybe it's not, it's, I think the hard R probably kind of put it outside of the neighborhood for a, uh, some folks and, and probably brought in others. So I think yeah. it's probably a fair balance for it. Yeah. 
All right, so let's talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Let's start with the good. Drew, what is good about It Chapter 1? I mean, <laughs> everything? <laughs> I don't have a lot to say negative about this, so I'm going to jump into something that I... It took me two days of thinking about the movie and going over my notes to realize this. But one of the things that I really love about this film is most of the mundane horror takes place in the daylight. Mm. And most of the supernatural horror takes place either inside or underground. Uh, so the dark is supernatural. And there, don't get me wrong, there's, there's Pennywise scenes in the daylight as well, but much of the film is daylight. And you don't get that in horror movies very often. Tremors, no. of course, being kind of the pinnacle of daylight horror. But it gives you those you are not safe in your small town vibe. Right. And, you know, normally it's nighttime. And this movie, there's apparently a curfew that's taking place in the town in Derry. But, like, it doesn't really come into play because we don't see our characters moving around in the nighttime. I don't think at all. No, anytime really. that that we they are active at night they're in their own homes right there's no sneaking out and let's go mm -hmm. do this and you tell your parents that you're staying it with me and there's none of that kind of stuff in this movie one of the things i've always liked about it is the idea that these characters are living mundane lives where this thing has started infiltrating and assaulting them yeah yeah and and it as it grows it starts to interact and engage with them in every literally every corner of their their lives, which is possibly the most terrifying thing of all. Right. So yeah, that, that observation out of the way, what is something else, Rafe? For me, one of the big things I noticed is just making the absolute most of their child performers. Like mm -hmm. th some of the performances are really good. The two scenes that stood out to me have the youngest performer of all, and that is the two scenes with uh, Georgie, the mm -hmm. scene where he's talking with Pennywise through the, the sewer, the sluice there, and the scene where Georgie's down in the basement and Bill comes down and, and talks with him there, the yelling, the, you know, you'll float too bit. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the kids are phenomenal. There's no point that I feel like, oh, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt because it's child actors. It's like, no, they're doing a really solid job in this. All of them are are quite fantastic in the roles that they are given. Uh, now, I will have a flip side of this when we get to the bad, but mm -hmm. I, I'm, I, I think the performances are all very good. All very good. And, and across the board, I think the adults are properly creepy. I think the kids are very believable, and, and that goes for both the protagonists and antagonists. Yeah, I agree. I think the directing's uh, really good, too. There's a lot of really excellent tracking shots Yes, that you know I didn't notice how the shots and the angles that they were using were creating the level of kind of the reveal of the menace of the situation does a really good job where a lot of the scenes are coming up sort of out of the ground in the same way that Pennywise and it comes up out of the ground. And so we start with almost what sort of looks like an idyllic scene. And as it rises, you realize that there's actually something malignant about the scene. Really well done. The directing is uh, quite good. And, you know, again, the directing has so much to do with the, the kids acting because, you know, I watch behind the scenes things and they talk about just like in Stand By Me, bringing the kids together early. And, and unlike Stand By Me, bringing all of the kids together, including the, the bullies as well. So, like, there's right. all these shots of, like, everybody having a really good time. And it's like everyone smiles on their faces. And then you're like, wow, they really like each other, which makes the scenes with Henry that much more menacing. Right. No, and I think one of the, the one of the things that contributes to that that you're talking about that cinematography is, and I didn't realize this until I was reading up on the film afterwards. I've seen it three, four times now. You never see Pennywise really just moving. 
like it's always a reveal and or he's standing still and being menacing that way or he's leaping across the screen or something like that you you there's only like one or two shots that you actually just see him walking in a or yeah. moving in that fashion and so the camera in order to pull off that effect which is an incredible effect because it really adds to the supernatural element of him you have to make camera shots work for that you know, so that's mm-hmm. that's a lot of planning and, and, and such. And I, I think that adds to the cinematography of it. Yeah, there's some good architecture with this. And sets. Set design is really good. The town works really well. And maybe, hmm, is it bad? No, I don't think it's bad. But uh, I'll say this. I think the violence and some of the set design starts to bend and lean towards the almost cartoony. I feel like this is a horror movie that is acceptable for older teens. Yeah, where, you know, like, yes, it's grotesque and there's gore, but there's a almost like a level of immaturity. And I'm not talking evil dead. Right. You know, it's not buckets of blood and ooze. I, I think it's still designed to be scary, but it's also you can look at it and you're still there's a sense of the fantastical, like how much of this is really the visceral nature of it is is dr- it almost has a dreamlike quality, yes. right? Like, which it needs for Pennywise. That's the yeah, right, absolutely, right. And so I think it, I appreciate it, but I can also see how someone might put that in the bad column because yeah. that over the top nature can maybe take you out of the scene. I thought it was perfect for the age group because I felt like this would have been. And again, this is talking about someone who whose favorite movie is the thing, right? This would have been kind of. me as a teenager i would have loved this yeah for my another one of my pluses is the 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 scene i actually just referenced uh the way that bloody bathroom scene is executed especially after the instigating event you know where it's now covered in blood and her father comes in and it is the, the the conversation that happens with them it it could have been so overplayed and i think as creepy as he is and as much as i don't like him the actor who performs bev's dad because of the way he chooses to underplay everything is even more menacing and and is is even more something that I like about the movie as much as I don't like him just even just the little I worry about you but that scene where he comes in and he's fussing at her and she says you know don't you see the blood and his response is just what blood and yeah. the way that that scene unfolds is just really fantastic. It's one of my favorite moments in the movie. I'm going to combine my comment your comment with my next comment is that I find the mundane horror to be so much scarier sure. than the supernatural threat to the kids. And, and it makes sense too, right? Because the, this is they are all dealing with horrors that children actually deal with. Sure, bullies. But in a horror film where you've got something stalking you that can appear in your home, that can take on the form of your fears, the fact that you know the betrayal of your parents and the people who love you and your neighbors and your friends... That is so much more horrific. And so when you get the goofy, kind of the goofy nature of the supernatural horror versus the subtlety of the mundane horror, it's really good. Yeah. It's really, really good. Also, the music is quite good uh, in almost every scene. Um, no, I, I totally agree. And in fact, that was one of the things I made notes that I made early on is that the threat of like the bullies is completely separate from the supernatural element, at least mm-hmm. for now. Now, I know because I've seen the second chapter, you know, that he comes back 
and is led by Pennywise. I forgot that that actually happens in this movie, too. And I missed, again, this is my third, fourth time seeing it. I had missed a, a little subtle detail. Again, it was done subtly, so you, you could miss it. No big deal. But when uh, Henry comes back at the end, and he, he's there they're in the, the by the well, I guess, and he's he attacks them there, and he's got his father's blood on him because he's killed his father. The blood on his face is Pennywise's clown makeup. Oh, is it? That's cool. Yeah, I I had not caught that before because that's after he finally has been led somewhat by Pennywise. There now is Pennywise has some influence over him, and so it makes sense. But I love the fact that until that part of the movie, these threats are completely separate. And yeah, absolutely, these are mundane threats that anybody can relate to. I mean, hopefully, hopefully your bullies are not like carving their name into your gut. Uh, yeah. I, thankfully, I never had bullies of that level. I always thought that made Henry even more terrifying, but... I think that there is a... I think Derry is cursed, right? I think it, whatever it is, Pennywise or whatever, I think people maybe have some dark tendencies, but I think it has infected the town. Sure. And I think maybe maybe that's like, you're going, maybe, maybe these people wouldn't act like this way if it wasn't because of this influence that has been there for a hundred plus years. You haven't seen chapter two, correct? I haven't watched okay. chapter the two. The first scene of chapter two, which is also what drew a lot of ire for that adaptation. Which is why I haven't watched chapter th- two. But that first scene is really what it's doing is showing exactly what you're talking about now. The, yeah. the effect that this curse, that this long-term evil presence has had upon the town as a whole. It, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be Pennywise to be evil, because the it, because that presence has been there for so long has become so yeah. pervasive and that's one of the things there's not a ton that I like about chapter two but that's one of the things that I do chapter two is serviceable it's it's not as brilliant as this film but it's it's serviceable yeah so what's bad about this film okay so my my bad kind of falls under the the same blanket statement here which is as I said I love the novel and in the novel these characters the losers club, they each have very definable traits, very definable characteristics. You know, Bill has his stutter, and Ben is a romantic. And and we see that in the movie, but they change some of the other characters in ways that don't make them the same characters. Like, Eddie is supposed to be a, a germaphobe. Like, he is supposed to have, like, that inhaler is his security blanket. And anytime anything goes wrong, anytime anything freaks him out, he's sucking on the inhaler. In the movie, we don't see the inhaler until almost halfway through the movie. Yeah. Uh, there's, like, one shot of it a little before that, but it doesn't become, like, a central focus of, oh, there's Eddie's inhaler until halfway through the movie. Uh, and, in fact, it, it plays in the book an essential part of of their final conflict with Pennywise that we don't see here in the film. And I, right. I we do feel see like, in the 90, 1990s. Yeah, well. we do in the 1990 version. I feel like, especially the first scene of the kids on that last day of school, some of their traits are so thrown on other characters. Eddie's a smart ass, and that's supposed to be Richie's territory. You know, Richie's mm-hmm. supposed to be the one who doesn't shut up. And Eddie is just running his mouth nonstop through that scene. And I, you know, particularly Eddie, uh, and there's a couple other <laughs> little things I'll bring up in a minute, but particularly the characterization of Eddie, I, I take issue with. But I will say, given the history, we, ta- we talked about all the writers that were attached to this, and this is a good place to bring up. The original script, which was from Kerry Fukunaga, he had renamed the characters. Like, it wasn't Bill, it was Willie. He had renamed several of the characters and had changed some things dramatically to which when I was reading this, I was like, but then it's it's not it. 
anymore. If you're making those dramatic changes, it's not the same story anymore. And I think some of these things are holdovers from his draft because they did use that draft as their jumping off point once Muschietti was brought on board. They, they mm-hmm. used that Fukunaga script as kind of their their foundation yeah well here's the thing and it's one of the things that it's it's very difficult as a fan of source material to appreciate the movie version of a television or the movie version of a book or the television version of a book and so on is that the movie has to stand on its own right um and, and this I does. Also, yeah it does and I, and I don't want that negative to be taken the wrong way i like this yeah. movie i do but if you are going well it's not like the book and these characters aren't the way they're supposed to it's been 35 years since i've read the book so I didn't remember those specific aspects and changes. Um, I did want Finn Wolfhard's character to be eaten first because <laughs> he is so annoying. And he's, he's nowhere near so as annoying, annoying as he's supposed to be. <laughs> I know, he, but he's just, oh, oh. And I, mm. anyway, knowing how the movie goes from point A to point B and ends, the second time around, I found it less annoying, but boy, that initial time, I was like, I really hope this kid gets just shredded. Anyway, but, you know, I, I would have liked a little bit more characterization similar to Super 8 and similar to Stand By Me and similar to Goonies. Some of the characters just become archetypes. Right. Um, and there are certain characters that we get. I mean, like, clearly, Bill is our, our main protagonist. They do, uh, you know, so we've got Bill and we've got Beverly. They're kind of there. Ben's sort of there. And we have the other characters kind of fade. I feel like Mike, we don't get much about who Mike is as a character. Because in the original novel, Mike is the historian. Right. And they gave that to Ben. Yeah. 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 And again, I would I didn't remember that. I remembered there was a someone stayed, you know, stays and becomes a librarian. Um, I haven't watched two, so I don't know how they handle that. But that was, that was like my only real bad is I wanted to get a little bit more of the characters, maybe by themselves, yeah, so that we could see how they interact as individuals versus how they are a part of the group. Because a lot of them, Stanley in particular, when they get to be <laughs> part of the group, is their personality is to just fade into the background. Right. Well, and that's how Stanley's treated in all adaptations of it, including sure. the original novel. <laughs> sure. And that's perfectly fine, but if you become too static of a character and I forget that you're there sure. and I'm watching the screen going, okay, there's seven of them. Okay, cool. They're all there. <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. I shouldn't have to count the screen um, because your personality is kind of, eh. So. Well, and that uh, that bloody bathroom is the perfect example of that. In the novel, Bev goes out with Richie, Eddie, and Stan and brings them back to see the bloody bathroom. Bill and Richie are not a part of that scene. They're never they're never there. Stan is the one who decides that they will clean it up. And it's like an uncharacteristic stance from him in that chapter. It's like, whoa, everybody's going, oh, dear, he's serious. Like, Oh, interesting. So it's, it's yeah, it's an interesting uh, change that they made. And they, they, I think they, if I remember correctly, they make the same change in the miniseries that it's all of them helping her clean the bathroom. It's not yeah. just. Well, it's a good, it's a good scene, you know, yeah. because it really demonstrates uh, a change because this is. This is the first time that we're realizing that the parents are oblivious to what's going on, truly oblivious, and that this is not an illusion. And that's kind of the, one of the most horrific things. Plus, 
it's such an interesting event to happen to Beverly, a character yep. who is buying, like the first time we're sort of not first time we're introduced to her, but she's buying tampons for the very first time to, to, to be attacked by hair and blood is quite a statement. And this is, you know, again, something similar to something like Stand By Me where you're talking about being on the cusp of, again, Stan, this see, it would have been perfect where Stanley is like, is going to become a man. That's the first thing we see with these kids is the discussion of what his bar mitzvah is going to be. Right. The transformation like that they're about to go through should be a kind of a better analog for, for that bar mitzvah. And so Stan should be more of an interesting character because his hesitancy to step into that role should be exemplified and personified in that way. And almost in many ways, Beverly is the character who is is like right. becoming a woman and her kind of narrative with everyone assuming she already is and has been promiscuous. I mean, it's there's some really and leave it to someone like Stephen King in the same way we, we talk about Stand By Me. Leave it to have these kind of characteristics and these character developments and these character arcs that can be explored further. And when you start looking at this as a story, I mean, this it, you could see where it would serve better as a book in many ways where you can really go down these rabbit holes. Because I think the the running time of, you know, roughly two hours services the, the story fairly well. The other thing I was going to say that was kind of bad, and I, it's not as much of an issue the second time around, is every single one of the characters has to interact with... I'm, I'm calling it it rather than Pennywise because they, it doesn't right. always appear as Pennywise, but... It, they interact with it as the threat in their own way, and we get to see who they are and how they deal with fear. Now, it's very different in each one, and I, I kind of timed it's no more than about 10 minutes per, but when you have seven kids and each one of them has to go through that scene, that's almost half of the film is their individual right. challenges, and that's tricky because it felt a little repetitive the first viewing. The second time, again, trying to suss out who they were as characters, I was a little bit more intrigued, and uh, this is one of those films where I'm like, well, I bought it. Do I need to buy it? Am I going to watch it more than once? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to watch this again. Yeah. So I feel like I will appreciate the nuances of what it's like for them to have uh, introduce their, I'm going to use the term, dance to the audience, right? <laughs> so listen, if you thought we talked about dancing in Stand By Me, this is this is the film to dance uh, f- folks who have never listened to another one of our podcasts, I don't understand what this is. Uh, you're going to want to go back to our uh, we'll explain the quest episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My other negative also ties into the adaptation from the novel, and that is that there are some iconic lines, catchphrases, if you will, from the novel that are ignored for the most part here. You know, they focus on Bill's bike is gray and has the word silver on it. And in the novel, in the novel, there's there's two different points where he uses the bike to literally outrun the devil. And mm-hmm. as he gets up speed on his bike, he calls out, hi-ho, silver, away. Uh, right. We don't need that in the movie. I'm okay with that one not being here. The one that I'm, I missed, uh, and I've missed every time I watched it, is because Richie is the non-stop smart aleck, and he is just running his mouth, the Losers Club ends up kind of coming up with this phrase of, beep, beep, Richie. And it's just, that's that's their way <laughs> of saying, shut up. Well, mm-hmm. in the movie, they don't say it. They do tell him to shut up. They do tell him at another point to to stop talking. And Pennywise says, beep, beep, Richie, but it's not a payoff because they didn't lay the foundation for it. So Pennywise saying it is like a nod to the audience of, hey, remember that from the book? But they very easily could have integrated it into the film as part of these characters, and yet they didn't. Listen, I'm going to take this as 
uh, a good thing that your main complaints are stuff they left out of the book. Absolutely. It's because it's not a it's not really an issue with the movie. It's just your appreciation of the source material. Okay. So yeah. Okay. I think that's... Right. Then let me carry on and get into the ugly because you yes, know what's ugly about it. The stuff from the novel that they didn't adapt, and thank God they didn't, because we did not need an orgy of prepubescent teens. <laughs> that's that's what's ugly, is the stuff they didn't interpret, and, and for good reason. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Uh, I also, and my ugly is, uh, I this movie is too good to expect the second half to live up to it. <laughs> and and from whatever I, I've heard from everybody else, it, it didn't. No. So. I mean, it's a shame because it's got a great cast, you know, Jessica Chastain and James McAvoy and Bill Hader. You know, it's got a good cast. It's kind of like the miniseries. The miniseries had a good cast, but it's also almost three hours. Yikesers. Yeah. I'm going to watch it. I like this enough that I, I will watch it. It's just I'm not, you know, chomping at the bit to to go for yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, I, I was like, I'm kind of struggling to find bad things to say about the film. So when, when I tell you what my score is, no one's going to be surprised. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think my score will be higher than it seems because I'm saying negative stuff. But really, my right. negative stuff is is not. As I said, I like the movie. Like, I think it's mm-hmm. the fact that I can't, the fact that I have to go to the source material for that negative stuff does say a lot. Right, as you yeah. And, and speaking of source material, because we did just conclude an episode on Stand By Me, also written by Stephen King, it's always know, Drew, fascinating. It feels like months since we've recorded that. I know, I know, right? <laughs> um, what's crazy, what's crazy is, you know, this is what, episode 10, right? Yes. Or, or this is the 10th movie we're discussing. We have done two movies by Brian Trenchard Smith. We've done two movies written and directed by Joe Cornish. And this is our second movie done by Stephen King, right? So kind of impressive that, you know, more than half of the movies we've discussed have a sort of like source repetition. And if you look at, you know, Goonies was produced by Steven Spielberg and has that Amblin feel and Super 8 was trying to recreate it and was produced by Spielberg. So, you know, Right, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are discussing our theme is a very very specific subgenre of film so it makes sense that there's going to be similarities but just looking at the source material from stand by me let's take a look here at similarities between stand by me and it so we're both dealing with a period piece right a quote-unquote more innocent time or that the fears reflect the time period that they're in and i will say i like the adaptation of moving it to a more modern age the original novel the kids are in the 50s and here Mm -hmm. it's the 80s 88 in fact so i i like that they'd have to so that as adults it's kind of the modern era right they didn't have to do that they could have put the adults in the 80s and the kids in the 50s you know they could have done that i'm glad they didn't it feels like almost like a spiritual 50s there's there's a, a town stuck in the 50s even though it's the 80s and we mainly get it that it's the 80s by the way people are dressed and the fact that every time they walk past the center of town there's a different movie from that year playing at different times yeah um lethal weapon 2 and i think nightmare on elm street 5 5 wow my goodness so the main characters are both mourning the loss of a brother and don't really haven't come to terms with their death uh and both bill from this movie and gordy from stand by me uh, are both ghosts in their own house they're a forgotten boy because the parents are so concerned and wrapped up in the death of the brother that they're they're essentially alienating themselves there's a right. there's deleted scenes that has some really interesting stuff i understand why they left them out was really yeah. helpful to see why they left them in i'm not going to bring them up because it doesn't really have much to do with it but both movies force young teens slash tweens to face what it means to grow up to confront death and to embrace adulthood both are pursued by gangs of older boys 
Now, you know, we both have Henry in this one and, and his gang and, and Ace and his gang. And I, I would prefer being pursued by Ace and his gang. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> and when yeah. we watch Stand By Me, I don't think that's a phrase I ever would have said because Ace and his gang would have scared the heck out of me. But by comparison. Right. Uh, exactly the, the case. And, you know, when we talked about Stand By Me, we're talking about should there be a ticking clock in which it's possible for Ace and company to intercept your characters, your PCs in your quest we decide that doesn't work because that's not the right. shucks, like the, the crux of that story. In this one, there's going to be a, when we talk about the game, of it, there's a lot of threat. I mean, it's just nothing but nonstop yeah. threat. There's no moment to tell a story within a story. There's, there's just horror. It's horror all the way down. <laughs> all right, Drew, my favorite part of our episodes <laughs> Which uh, which kid were you? We, you have you have seven in the Losers Club. I mean, heck, I guess you could extend out and be one of the bullies, but I don't think you were. But which of the no, kids no, depicted, no, no, no. Which were you like at their age? So what I like about this is I've been thinking about this for the better part of a week, and I don't have a really good answer. And so I'm I'm gonna throw two possibilities out at you and tell and have you tell me what you think. And in some way, you know, for instance, in the last one, I thought like I was wasn't crazy enough to be Teddy, right. and I was slightly more you know. Like, we settled with Vern, right? So with this one, I feel like I probably was Richie, to be honest. That That's Finn Wolfhard's character, right? The one right. that I hated so right. much and I wanted to get in. I feel like that level of energy, while I don't think I was constantly saying as inappropriate stuff as he was, I didn't have that level of bravado that he does. Right. I was definitely saying weird stuff that probably would have alienated me from the group. I think that's probably the character I was more like. But also, maybe a little Ben, in that we have a character with this un, kind of this crush and unrequited love and was really into, you know what? It is the summer. Maybe I will spend it in the library reading books and doing stuff. Like of all the kids who were probably playing d and I'm guessing Ben probably and probably would have made a really good dungeon master. <laughs> I think it's probably Richie. I hate to say it, but I'm, I'm throwing both of those out there. I think those are the ones that I was most like because I'm certainly not a germaphobe. I definitely wasn't Bill. I'm not Beverly. I definitely am not Stanley. So I think it's a it's a Ben Richie kind of situation. Gotcha. How about you? I can tell you when I read this as a teen, the mm-hmm. character that I connected most with was Bill. Yeah. But I think I was more of a Richie because I did run my mouth a lot and I yeah. did annoy people. I I still remember uh, when I was in my 20s uh, seeing my grandmother coming for a visit and her talking about how annoying I had been as a teenager. So <laughs> <laughs> I think I was more of a, a Richie than I'd like to, to think. <laughs> I'll tell you how I was a Richie. Imagine that level of annoyance, but rather than the inappropriate comments, I probably would have been just quite Quoting movies and television shows. I think, like, that's sort of where... Because actually, television doesn't get mentioned much no. in this. And, like, television is a malevolent force in this movie. Because we only see the screen once, but we hear three, the three screen... Times. We see it three times, or yeah, we, we see it. it's not the focus, but it's on right. screen three times. Yeah. we definitely hear show. it in the background. It's the same show every it's single time the, the television's show. on, and she's talking the first time when it literally is just in the background and it's barely on the shot. The woman is talking about going into the sewers with sewers. her friends. Yeah, yeah, she kind of predicts the actions of what's what's happening. Yeah, it's right. great. I I really like it. 
Um, I found that to be like you better believe, folks, that if you are playing a uh, it inspired role playing game with me, every time you turn on the TV, something horrible is going to be on there, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse as the session progresses. Yeah. Well, you really like this. That's a good segue into uh, rating the movie. Now, sure. for those who are new or need a reminder, uh, we rate the movie on a double axis scale. Uh, it is one to 10. We rate it as far as how good of a movie it is, just as a movie, and then how good of a kids on bikes film it is, as far as the stipulations we've made for our genre. So we'll start with how good of a movie is this. Drew, how good on a scale of one to 10 of a movie is this? It's a really good movie, Rafe. It is. This is a really good film. And I think I think I'm gonna have to Oh, this is tough. This is tough. And now, admittedly, we had said at some point in time we're going to, when we've finished our twelve movies, go back and change some of our ratings. Uh yes. having everything. Knowing that I'm definitely going to improve some of my film scores and reduce some of my film scores, giving it chapter one a nine. Tying it with Stand By Me feels wrong, but that's what I'm going to do. I think yeah. this is a like a genuinely good film if you like this kind of film. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to give it a nine. Yeah, and I've given a couple different movies a nine. Uh, I've, I'm the only one who's given a movie a ten so far, uh, but I'm also giving this a nine. I think it's a really good movie. It does not have the same emotional connection for me as Stand By Me, which is the movie yeah. I've ranked as a ten, uh, but it is definitely a really... And I, I mean, I've se- I said I've seen this three or four times now, and it only came out five, six years ago, so uh, right. I, I think that says a lot about it right there. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. So, yeah, nine for both of us. Okay. How good of a kids on bikes movie is is this? Now, our kids on bikes definition, again, is kids 18 years of age or younger get themselves into and out of trouble and keep their agency while doing so, usually in a specific location, which is essential to the plot. So, I want to set this up a little. (laughs) Because... I said that it was to Kids on Bikes Horror as Goonies is to Kids on Bikes Adventure. And we, in our very first episode, gave Goonies, both gave Goonies a 10. Because it basically set the mold for what our expectations were. And I want to compare this to Goonies in the, the categories... And so you can, you and I, so I can understand myself. Okay. So let's, let's compare it. Goonies versus it. Let's just say bikes. The, the level of not agency, but like being able to travel in the town, not the town itself, but traveling in town. I think it has better bike scenes because they are on bikes very frequently. Yeah. And they are limited to a, a fairly concrete idea of what the town is. They they stay within the limits of Derry the entire movie. They go underneath in the same way that they do in Goonies, right? But, but for less time. But for less time. The kids themselves, they both have seven kids, so we right. are given a team. Each kid has kind of an archetype or at least one thing about them. And even though I complained that I felt that there weren't enough individual aspects of the kids in it i feel like goonies maybe even has that they're a little bit more archetypy than it i feel like there's maybe better routed characters so it kind of gives the edge to it however one of the things i love about goonies is that you have teenagers and preteens right together and that really gives it it, this is very rare to see that 
agency. I think it's pretty equal in agency. They're they are out doing their own thing throughout. We don't see the parents in really either one, except for in the situation where the parents are being horrible and menacing. Right. Um, as far as place, Derry versus Astoria, I mean, Derry hands down. Yeah. I think we have a, a much better place. And the reason I think that it is a better representation of kids on bikes than the Goonies is because the Goonies came first. Right. And they have the Goonies to play off of. I don't think this movie is going to be as good of a kids on bikes movie without the Goonies. So with all of that said, I just want to draw those comparisons. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give It Chapter 1 a 9. Wow, okay. But I'm also going to drop the Goonies to a 9. Oh. Now, I'm not doing it now because, you know, we said we'd do it later. But I think, I can't say that the Goonies is better. I think they're different in different ways. So I, I guess I, I got to ask this then. If 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 Goonies isn't a 10, uh-huh. and if you're saying It might be better than the Goonies in some ways, and It's also not a 10, then what the hell is a 10? I don't think there is a 10. I don't think there's a perfect Kids on Bikes movie out there. And I think it's I think it's fine to have that because Rafe, it opens us to the possibility that a better Kids on Bikes movie is out there. And I'll say this, and I will say this. If Super 8 had had better, better rounded characters and they had kept, if they had the teamwork of the Goonies and it, it could have been a 10. But it, it fell down for the reasons that we, we, we explained. Because I think, like, I appreciate the town. I feel like the 80s-ness of it. The setup of them all being film kids. It doesn't, you know, we're not talking about that one. I think this could be a 10, but I don't think it's quite there. And I I, I think rather than bringing it to the level of the Goonies, I'm going to bring the Goonies down to its level. And that is not, that's a compliment. I think that's a compliment for me. I like this movie better than the Goonies. As far as Kids on Bikes is concerned, I think it's on par and uh, yeah, so there we go. Okay. That's, I'm going to give it a nine and I'm going to drop the Goonies to a nine. Okay. I thought after our lengthy stand by me conversation about the director's chain of successes, you were going to quote one of his other movies and say, this one goes to 11 and cheat <laughs> system. But okay. All right, I, so, it's- so I thought about that for the very same reasons, <laughs> um, which is why I wrote all, all this whole comparison down on a piece of paper today going, wait a second. How am I going to do this? Um, and I also think I think uh, Attack the Block should be a nine as well, um, because it's it's both adventure and horror in equal measures. And I think it's I, I still like it as a, a film better than both of them. But uh, I, I know you don't feel the same way. And that's a totally different subject. So, yeah. So I don't disagree with a single thing you've said. I think if you compare this to the Goonies on the criteria that we have established, it is just as successful mm-hmm. to, to meet that definition. It is as you pointed out it is better about it in some facets than the goonies you know there's a heck of a lot more bikes here because the environment lets them have that uh, right so i i don't i disagree with you about the the 10 i think the perfect kids on bikes movie can exist and does exist and i think we've watched two of them and, yeah. and i think that doesn't preclude that a better one can't come along and it can also be a 10 without taking away from the achievements of it chapter one and the goonies so i think if the goonies is a 10 this is also a 10 and I, I, well, I totally, I, I think that, I, I think that very strongly, Drew. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you think that strongly. And, and I think, I think, here's, here's the thing. I don't think I've seen it chapter one enough to raise it to the same heights that I saw. And here's the thing too. I think I'm too old to appreciate it chapter one for what it probably is for this generation. And maybe if I talked with more teenagers who watched it, 
you know, as as teens, uh, I probably would be like, no, it's a 10. It's a 10. Because it's really hard to knock Goonies off of its ledge. So maybe that's where I'm I'm coming from. Maybe yeah. maybe I'll be really super nice and give everybody a 10, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It is now time for our actual favorite part of the show and our listeners' favorite part of the show, our Kids on Bikes draft. Each of us is building a Kids on Bikes team of seven mundane kids and one peripheral adult. Uh, that's what we will have when we are done. At the point that we are at, we have picked more than that number, so we will continue picking them as we make our way through these last four movies in our season, and then we will come Pull the team down to seven mundane kids and one peripheral adult. Uh, Drew, who is on your team so far? So far, from the and this is in the order that the movies we reviewed. From the Goonies, I have Data. From Attack the Block, I have Moses. From the Lost Boys, I have my adult grandpa Emerson. From the movie Now and Then, I have Sam. From Super Eight, I have Alice. From the Kid Who Would Be King, I have Kay. From BMX Bandits, I have Judy. From the Quest, I have Cody Walpole. From Stand By Me, I have Chris. Okay. And I was about to say, and from it, I have, but no, I don't get to pick first. That no, is, no, 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 no. It was my uh, selection, so you get to go. Yeah, my my team thus far, again, in the order that we've gone, is uh, from Goonies, I have Mikey. From Attack the Block, I have Pest. From The Lost Boys, I have Edgar Frog. From Now and Then, I have Dr. Roberta as my adult. In Super 8, I have Charles. From The Kid Who Would Be King, I have Betters. From BMX Bandits, I have Goose. From The Quest, I have Jane. And from Stand by me, I have Vern. Uh, and as you said, this was your pick of a movie, which means by our rules, I get to pick first in the draft. Drew, who are we picking from? So we have the losers, right? So we have Bill, Richie, Eddie, Beverly, Mike, Ben, and Stanley. <laughs> we also have the Bowers gang, if you want to go in that direction, which is Henry, Patrick, Victor, and Belch. And I was thinking about it. This movie doesn't really have a good adult candidate. Neither of us have gone over one adult. Like, that almost seems locked in for us right now. We still have three more movies after this one. But there isn't really a viable adult candidate in this movie. No, not a good one. I, I If you think my team is dysfunctional now, uh, Just choosing any of the adults from this movie only is going to make it worse. And I agree. Listen, I got Grandpa Emerson. I don't need right. another adult. There's a couple coming from the ones I know that maybe, maybe we'll see. But I'm so curious to see who you pick because, Rafe, I'll be honest, I have no idea who to choose. So even even with you going first, I still have a conundrum because there are three characters I think would go really good with my team. So I'm interested in seeing what you do. Well, as I said, when I read this as a teen, the character I was drawn to was Bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill is very clearly the group's leader. I already have a leader. I'm pretty set on Mikey. I don't expect to see him going anywhere. Um, but more importantly than that, I feel attacked, Drew. You attacked me in our last session and you didn't even know it. But you pointed out that you had this mindset suddenly that you had white males on your team. And oh, dear God, are you going to be putting them in the leadership position? And I looked at my team and I'm like, I'm predominantly white males. Listen, in the 1980s, <laughs> if you were making an adventure film, your audience was white males. Sorry, that's just how that works. And it's not that I am attacking you for the selection of your characters or the team. You have chosen what was available to you for the most part. No, because uh, but, you but, have but, chosen not white males, so it's... But, you know, those are the characters that I'm choosing. I, I do want to point out something to you that you may not have you may not have considered. The reason that Bill is the leader of the losers in this film and in this book is because of what happens to Georgie. 
Right. That may not have happened to Georgie for our characters. It probably did, right? But like, if you like Bill as a character, it would be interesting to see how they negotiate a team if Georgie's death is not on the table. You're not avenging Georgie's death. It's not an active participation of what his motivation is. I'm just saying, when I run the game with your team, I probably, maybe, will not be running it chapter one. I'm not saying I'm not, because to be honest, (laughs) it has occurred to me that this scenario would be absolutely, I can already see Graham getting excited about this. This scenario would be so amazing to throw your team into. If you, but no, because that's the baggage that Bill already comes with. That's even though it happens in the movie at the beginning, it's still the bulk of the movie is set after that. I, I don't think you get to say oh, it's Bill, but he still has Georgie. Well, then he's not the same character anyway. Well, what I'm saying is, if he is not... It doesn't matter, because I'm not picking Bill. All right, all right. All right, that's fine. That's fine. So, having felt attacked, I looked at, okay, well, what are my non-white male candidates here? And and that really leaves me with Mike Uh and Bev. Right. And if the movie had gone with keeping Mike the historian as he Mm -hmm. is in the novel, he'd be an interesting candidate to have in this group that I have. Like, I could see the Mm -hmm. historian fitting in really well with the group, but that's not the Mike that's in the movie. That's the Mike from the novel, but it is not the Mike that's in the movie. And so I feel like I have to go with Bev because, A, she's a wonderful candidate. I love the idea of having her on my team, but B, then she also meets the criteria uh, that I kind of uh, set for myself. So Bev is my choice, which we didn't point this out earlier, uh, but we I feel like we do have to point out, we just talked uh, on our intermission about Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. Uh, Sophia Lilith, who is Bev in the movie, was also in that film. She's the druid. Yeah, yeah. And and speaking of kids on bikes, she is also in a the most recent Nancy Drew movie. Which I have not seen yet. I haven't either, but honestly, I, I find her to be an exemplary actress. So I do would I. Be, I'd be very interested in seeing that. Part of me would be like, I would have taken Beverly... And if I took Beverly, I would probably have maybe kept Judy on my team. I really like the idea of, like, two redheads. <laughs> and the So here's, I think, I applaud your, your choice, because I think that makes a lot of sense for your group. I am, I am really, because I knew that, I figured there were, there's only two possibilities that you were going to choose. I, I thought you would, you're going to take Beverly, you're going to take Ben. Um, because Ben as a historian is such an interesting character. And I think it would go really well with Charles. I think he would, he would really help. I think he kind of fills in a role that betters has. And I'm saying this because I'm trying to talk myself either into or out of Ben. I like Mike as a character. There's something about the quiet person who is clearly physically the strongest because he works on a farm. Right. He's the strongest of all of them, but he is a character who is truly an agent of peace at heart. And he does not want to be violent. He does not want to use his physical size um, to harm other people. And he is forced into this situation where, I mean, his, his crux of his narrative is he does not want to kill those helpless. And his, I'm guessing, uncle or whoever it is who delivers the speech, you are either in the pen or you are outside of the pen 
and one day someone is going to let you know what position you're in right. when they kill you, right? Like, so he has to make that decision, which is a shame. You know, it's 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 a narrative that we get in soldiers very often, and, and that's sort of the role that, that our, these young kids have to take. So my choice is clearly between Ben or Mike. Or last episode, I did not select Teddy because Chris is perfect and makes so much sense with my team. Really right. does. I don't have a pest. No. I don't have a Richie. I don't have a character that's, you know, in the very first episode, I told you, I, I didn't know if I wanted to choose Data or I wanted to take Mouth, right? There is there is something to be said about a character who it's fun to play and you know you're going to have that, you're going to give that character to the player who, like, players are going to talk like that. And having a character who's kind of built into that. And Richie has some interest because Richie is clearly the best friend and he will stick by him always, even if you don't want him around. Rafe, I don't know who to s- select. <laughs> Part of me wants to go, We're gonna. I'm going to start a poll on the Facebook page. No, you have I to I know, pick. okay. <laughs> this is so hard. I think I'm going with Richie. I think I'm going with Richie. And I'll tell you why. The entire time I was watching the film, the first time I'm like, oh no, I, I absolutely want Ben. Because Ben... I love the idea that he did the research. Right. And I've got Sam, who I think is also kind of the smart one. And I don't know if our group necessarily, my group doesn't have a lot of uh, studious people in it. So maybe having someone like, maybe someone like having with Ben would be, oh, okay. This is tricky. This is definitely the hardest decision. Uh, if you hadn't chosen Beverly, I would have just gone Beverly. Like, I think I think that makes sense. <laughs> Because she's an awesome character. She's an awesome character. And I think she's also, she's definitely the best written and most well-rounded character in that group. And, and to go back to my my negative about the movie, if this had been the book version of Mike, I probably would have gone with him. If it had gone been the book version of Richie, I think there'd be a lot more compelling reason to take it. Because he's a comedian, he's a smart aleck, he does different voices, uh, uh, that kind of stuff. And here he's just... Uh, he's not as much wisecracking. He he's he's really annoying. Right. And part of me is like, I don't know if I'll keep him. My heart says Ben, but I think I'm still going to go with Richie. Uh, I think if you put Richie on any team with Moses, I think the, the sparks are going to fly constantly and it's going to give Chris something to do. Some people just want to see the world burn. And, and Drew think, is but, one of those people. <laughs> I Listen, as annoying as I find those characters to be, the reason that I'm not choosing Mike and I'm not choosing Ben is that they fit too well with the team and there's not enough challenge. Right. You know, like we have characters that are kind of on edge and Mike is just going to fall into the background. And Ben, it would be interesting if I chose Ben and brought Judy onto the team so that he could kind of fall for Judy, you know. But no, no, curses. I'm going to go with Richie. I'm so sorry, world. I'm so sorry. I've, I've disappointed you all. But someone's going to get to play Richie. And I, I feel like I needed a character that we all kind of didn't like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because there's always one of those. I don't. If you look at my group, I don't have a funny sidekick. I do not no. have a funny sidekick on my team at all. No, you don't. And I kind of I kind of feel like I need one. And every time I think about whether or not I want to take Richie, the scene where he's in the background and steals the tuba from the marching band and starts playing it, <laughs> uh, and they, he starts getting chased by the marching band, it's holding the background, and it's it's clearly a scene that was probably improvised. 
uh, while they're talking about the actual plan. I think that I gotta go with them. Yeah, that's it. Final, final, uh, final offer. No, what's the thing from final uh, answer? Final answer. Richie. Okay. Ugh, Locked in. All right. Little. So that's uh, Beverly Marsh for my team and Richie for yours. <laughs> All right, that is only the movie discussion portion of this show. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will talk about the gamification of It Chapter 1. Passengers, remain calm and please stay in your seats. We are experiencing pirate activity. Oh, there's just some, um, something happening. Um, what? Them. Um, <laughs> them. Oh, no. <laughs> At the outer edges of space, where union is but a whisper, humanity scrapes together a living amongst the stars. This is the story of four Lancers, talented pilots of mechanized chassis from all corners of the known universe, thrown together by circumstance and destiny and credits. Follow Matcha, Moxie, Roadkill, and Silver, led by me, Reed, your Game Master, through the Lancer System, a mud and laser style anime mecha RPG. I hope they brought some printers with them, because this is Bring Your Own Mech, an actual play Lancer podcast, and batteries are not included. Follow my heading, and I'll see you there. Welcome back. We are now going to discuss how we can gamify the film so that anyone can play a role-playing game session inspired by the movie. Not adapted from the movie, but inspired by the movie, regardless of the system they are using. Drew, this is really your territory, so we're going to let you kind of lead things from here. Yeah, if you thought I overthought my draft pick, given that this is the shortest period of time from a recording session uh, to another recording session, this might be the most work I have done on a film. Uh, That being said, the first thing that we need to discuss is our session zero, right? right? Before we actually start to play, what do you as the GM discuss with you as the player before? So what's being included? What is not being included? There's a couple of things. One, clearly it is about fear and what we have to do to overcome that. Our shorthand on this podcast is referring to it as the dance. Uh, Again, saying thank you, Sarah. Um, So every character needs to figure out what their dance is before the game gets started because this is going to have huge ramifications for a game where you are constantly being attacked by the thing you fear most. Two, every character needs to have a relationship with the town. Now, it seems a little odd to say this because um, you should be creating your version of dairy or whatever it is that you're playing at as part of it, but I think it's important for you to know, are you popular? Are you an outsider? Are you new to the town? Did your family move here? Do you have deep roots to town? Because that is going to come into play quite a bit. Again, it needs to be something that is discussed before you start playing, and it should be discussed with not just the game master, but the other players as well, so that you all can figure out what that relationship is. Three, you have got to have a serious conversation about traumatic triggers and really discuss trigger warnings, because part of this storyline 
will be how that manifests in their relationship with their parents because every single kid in this movie has something traumatic in their relationship with their parents. Some of them don't have parents, and that's the trauma. Some of them have parents, and they are a constant threat to them, either mentally or physically. That's just the nature of this story. If that is something that is going to feel prohibitive, then maybe don't play a... uh, You you can talk with your GM about dumbing that down and not making it as intense, certainly. If you're playing with young kids, don't do this. But I think if you are really trying to capture the feeling of this film, regardless of the system, you need to have that kind of discussion. And you need to have it first so that the GM is not surprising players with what the trauma is. There needs to be lines and veils. You know, we're not discussing this or we're specifically discussing this. Is that okay? Not just with the player who has that relationship, but with everybody else. You don't want to traumatize your other players in play. That's not fun for anybody. I know it's a horror game. This really is going to be a horror game and not an adventure game. Yeah, I I think out of all the ones we have done so far, this one is the most important as far as laying, establishing those boundaries of what a game inspired by this movie calls for. And are Mm -hmm. your players okay with that? Because this, this is a hard R movie. So a campaign inspired by it is going, now it can be lighter. You can go to the miniseries for more ideas on that. But as far as this movie goes, it, it leans into its hard R rating for a reason. And I think a game inspired by it would as well. Yeah. If the thing that is the threat, I'm calling it threat, capital T, threat, if the threat is coming after you with your deepest fears, you, you got to be prepared to accept that as how the game works. Yep. Once the session zero is done, there are certain truths. You follow these truths regards of the system that you're playing, you are going to capture the spirit of it, chapter one. Last time we talked, I feel like we really rely heavily on Dungeons & Dragons as our rule set. And that is not a failing on our part. It is the most popular role-playing game generally across, I mean, it just it just is. And this works really well as a D&D game. There's a lot of other systems that work. I only bring that up saying that as horror goes, what I'm about to like drop on everybody, there's some stuff that isn't a part of the rules for D&D. Some systems are going to work better. Here are the truths. This is a horror game. The stakes are high. Character death is possible and likely, not as likely as, say, something like Attack the Block, where we do have character death. Spoilers for Attack the Block. So, yeah, you should know, you should go into every scene expecting a character potentially to die, certainly a character to be traumatized or, you know, have something latch onto their face. The dance. The character's fears will come into play and they will come into play frequently. So, you need to figure out what your character is afraid of. And I would also maybe create two fears, a primary fear or an abstract fear, and then a fear that is associated with the relationship with their family. Yeah. Um, that, that is something that happens in, in the movie. The town. Okay, so Derry is as much a character in this film as any of the kids, sometimes even more so. Um, the town is going to be affected, and the evidence of that infection and effect from the threat to the PCs is going to grow. And as the threat grows in power, so will the town's, the the effect on the town. And it's also important that as the kids notice these things, and as that threat grows and grows and grows, the parents will become more and more blinded to the threat. And I love the term thrall. They will become enthralled by the threat. Mm, I like that. This is one of the last truths I came up with. And it's 
possibly the most horrifying aspect of this movie. You are not safe in your own home. No. Like, you are not safe in your own home. And that is the part that it didn't really occur to me, even though it's evidenced multiple times in the movie, but to really let that... You will not be able to be safe when you get home. You'll not be able to shut the door to your room and know that the creature... You can't recuperate, right? Like, it can. The threat can come and get you. And, even worse, your parents are a threat to you. They -hmm. may not be a physical threat to you, but they will mentally assault you as well. Because they are part of that uh, effect, that thrall, as you talked about. Yeah. And that really, I mean, this is, (laughs) this scenario is going to be traumatizing and it's going to wear you down as a player, I think. But I also think it's going to be really fun. You know, the goofiness aside, like you are not probably going to break into Monty Python scenes unless you're maybe playing a character like Richie. Um, (laughs) The PCs will be menaced by the supernatural threat capital T, and by a mundane threat influenced by the supernatural threat. So in the same way that we have um, Pennywise chasing after the kids, but also Henry chasing after the kids, both will be true. It does not have to be kids your age. I mean, there's a lot of different ways of doing this. I was just thinking of the Call of Cthulhu Harlem Unbound expansion, where the threat could just be the police. And that is a, if you are playing characters who are all characters of color, could you imagine if everyone was like Mike in this situation? Like at least, at least the other characters are white, but like, can you imagine this in a game where we were really leaning on racism? No, horrible. Don't want to do that. As a game master, it just, that feels yucky to me. But it, it, again, that is the kind of threat level that you should be constantly making these decisions based off of like the world around you is out to get you. The threat manifestation is cyclical. So this has this has happened before. I think it's important to say that this has happened before. I don't think it's as much fun to play its first manifestation. I like the idea that your town has a history with this threat, and the threat has a lair, um, a place where it needs to go to recuperate if you've done damage to it, and where your basically final confrontation should be. Now, I know that confronting your threat in the lair seems to be too obvious, and maybe that's not going to be the case, but it makes a lot of sense in many, many ways, because you're probably going to learn more about it in its in its lair. And again, I'm saying this as someone who doesn't really remember the 1990, doesn't remember the book, and hasn't seen chapter two, but we're going just based off of it, chapter one from 2017. Rafe, you've been awfully quiet. I feel like there's something else in here that you uh, you, you need to throw in here I, for us. I came in with one, one important what I think is an important truth, which is that the real power of the group here, of, of your, your characters, is working as a team. Now, this is not a theme that is uh, present in the novel, but it is a important part of the movie of It Chapter One. Going solo is when the dangers appear, and going solo is when the dangers can become overwhelming. Working together as a team is what is imperative. Now, as we see in the movie, the threat is also aware of this and is trying to break the team up. But the players who, this is one of those where breaking the party, splitting the party, a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Bad idea. Any horror-based game, you know, there's, there's a lot of games out there where like, yeah, we'll split up. Sure, why not? We're going to play some Paranoia. It's actually really to your benefit to not be with your teammates because right. they're trying to stab you in the back the entire time. D&D, yeah, you can do that. Uh, you know, but this, no, bad. Horror, any, any horror game, splitting up is bad. But that's where the fun takes place. 
Um, yep. All right. Mechanics. So those are the truths. I think if you stick to those truths, and there's a lot of them, and it feels like there's a lot, and I don't want anyone to feel like they're being weighed down by those truths. I think if you did even half of those, you still would feel like it chapter one, uh, regardless of the, the system. You know, I, I make the joke that, you know, you could do a Star Wars game. You could, if you follow even half of those rules, you could do a Star Wars game based off of this. It seems to be like so wildly off topic, but that's kind of the point. And to manifest, so horror is easily the hardest thing to do in a role-playing game. It's hard for us to be scared, right? Because there's rules, there's math, we're sitting around a table, we're looking at each other. Very few role-playing games capture fear. I can only think of two. Dread is one of them, where you play with a Jenga tower, and every time a threat happens, you pull out one piece, and when the tower collapses. So you actually have the physical manifestation and anxiety of that tower starting to wobble. But that anxiousness doesn't really work on a fear-based. The one that really works well is Ten Candles, because as you roll and fail on your rolls, you slowly extinguish your candles until there's only one candle and one die left. And you real and, and the scenario gets worse and worse and worse and worse. This is not a campaign. Ten candles is not a campaign. It, it's really about telling one story and making it as horrific as possible. But mechanics can be used to help with that. So here's some mechanics that I thought were evidenced in the film that I want to talk about. First is Blood Oath. Now, in Now and Then and Stand By Me, we had the Friendship Bracelet and the Pinky Promise. And this is very similar to that. A blood oath that we see at the end of the movie uh, works like the pinky promise and the friendship bracelet, but it's a ritual. It can be performed and can affect two or more people, so your entire group. So what this means is anytime you do anything that benefits your blood oath, you get bonuses to your rolls. And anything that you do that goes against your blood oath you get negative to your rolls. So that kind of keeps the group's focus, makes it a lot easier. So for instance, splitting up the party, that goes against your blood oath of working together to defeat this thing or coming back, you know, in 27 years kind of thing. So you get negatives. This blood oath can only be done at the end of a, a session or at the end of a chapter. So in order for it to truly reflect the feeling in the movie, what they do at the end of chapter one before chapter two begins, that kind of thing. There is a curfew in the film. And we, again, there's not a lot of activity at night. So that is something that, a mechanic that does have an effect, even though we know the curfew is an effect, but we just don't see anything like the response to that. So what I'm saying is, if you have a curfew, it limits what the characters can do after hours. And that's, that's sort of it. That's more of a thematic mechanic. This is where I went a little nuts. And I'm going to start <laughs> by reading a quote by Stephen King. Stephen King says, I recognize terror as the finest emotion... And so I will try to terrorize the reader. But if I find that I cannot terrify, I will try to horrify. And if I, I find that I cannot horrify, I'll go for the gross out. I'm not proud. <laughs> terror and horror are two different things. We talk about horror movies, and, and, and terror is the, the feeling that you get before the action happens, and horror is the repulsion one feels after the action happens. And that's sort of what we get with horror films, is we see something horrible happen. And the joy of watching a horror film, for me, is almost like the terror, that expectation before the thing happens, and then there's almost that kind of release when there's the jump scare or the, the thing. And then the gross-outs, you know, there's some gross-out bits in here. Again, my favorite film, The Thing. A lot of gross-outs. How do you manifest fear mechanically? Boy, this is not finished. 
but I feel like I've got something going. Again, just like Stand By Me, if you like this mechanic that I'm throwing out there and you think that you would like to use it in one of your game sessions, again, regardless of what system you're using, please let us know in the Facebook group how that worked out for you or any ideas that you have because I feel like I'm on to something here, but it's still a work in progress. Fear. Fear level as your characters get more and more afraid, it will affect your psyche. Level one, apprehension. You are uneasy. Each level will give you a negative to your roll. So for instance, if you're level one, there's only five levels. So at level five, you're rolling at negative five. Now in something like D&D or any kind of system that uses a D20, that's bad, but that's only 25%. If you're in something like Powered by the Apocalypse and uh, you only using D6s, well, we have to change that system because guaranteeing that you're rolling ones just means that you're dead and that's not going to help anybody. Same, honestly, with kids on bikes. If I, if my D, if my stat is a D4, <laughs> yeah, agreed. I have a negative five. No, the beautiful thing about kids on bikes is that you can get exploding die, right? So if you have a D4 True. and you roll a four, you get to roll again. I think that if you get an exploding die in kids on bikes, you actually are going to drop your fear level because that is you overcoming your, like in a kind of an epic way, if you think about it. That's not really built into these rules, but I think that could be used. One is apprehension, you're uneasy. Two is spooked, you're paranoid, right? Three is terrified, you have to hide. You're going to find yourself hiding. Four is horrified and you are panicked, which means you're not thinking clearly and receive penalties to any kind of mental role that you might have. You have got to do anything that you can to flee from whatever it is that's scaring you. So that can really break up a group. Five, worst case scenario, you're paralyzed, you're helpless, you have abandoned hope, you cannot move. You have curled up in a ball. The threat will immediately be drawn to you, right? This is a thing that eats fear. And if it is not in physical danger, it will start to feed either on your psyche or on you physically. Even if you survive and are calmed, this event will scar you for life. I think if you're going to reach this level of fear. Now, how do you reach these levels of fear? I don't know. Um, I'm still working on that. Uh, I, I, I've got some, I got some rules following that kind of go along with it. This is, this is not a perfected and tested system. This is something that I've come up with in the last two or three days. I will say that being in a group, like Rafe has said, being in a team helps your roles. So if at least one member of your party succeeds against this fear, um, and has a moment, it has a moment that they can actually try and calm or bolster the group. Uh, everyone will get a bonus. What kind of a bonus that's kind of up to the GM. And it also depends on what kind of system. Again, this is a generic mechanic that should be able to be played in a vague sense across all systems. Let's talk about the threat, because that's really tricky. Because try to imagine it without Pennywise, and that's really hard to do. But Clown is not going to always work in every scenario. Right. And, and that is a bit tricky, because it seems like such an iconic part of this. But again, you should be able to do this across any system. So, you know, a harlequin of some kind... Clown works really well because anything that has a color, like a, a weird smile, should be able to s solve that. I mean, <laughs> but let's just talk about the threat, right? We talk about it being cyclical, and we also talk about the threat growing as it feeds. So the threat itself will get certain levels. Level one, the threat has access to two of its powers, aside from being physically able to assault and attack something. Uh, the powers will be listed below. Uh, it can only menace NPCs, which means the horror is going to be happening to other people, not the PCs in the beginning. As PCs start to drop off, then you start to get more threat to the actual player characters. And the threat is going to have to hunt close to its lair, which will allow your players to eventually figure out, well, wait a second, it attacked so-and-so here, it attacked them here, and then the first attack came here. There's a pattern. 
just like in the movie, just like in really almost kind of any Monster of the Week sort of a story, the study of the pattern of the threat helps you to find out where it is and how to defeat it. Uh, level two, the threat can now menace the PCs. Uh, has influence over most corruptible. So NPCs that can be corrupted, it can. So someone like Henry or someone who's a racist or someone who's a has criminal or violent tendencies are already as what we would call, and I know this is, you know, bad people, something along those lines, it has uh, influence over them. It has access to three of its powers. The threat can hunt away from its lair, and once it is successfully engages at that location, it is considered to now have influence in that area. So if it is hunted and killed in a spot on your map, um, successfully at level two, it can always come back and say it has influence. Because people... Uh, it has kind of marked its territory. That fear exists there. At level three, the threat can force the PCs into a constant level, a fear level of one, regardless of the situation, because now it's a genuine threat. It's coming after them. They're afraid. They should be on, on edge. Uh, the threat has free range within the town. Wherever the location is on the spaceship, uh, on the village, in whatever plane of existence, it has access to anywhere on that map. It can enter the PC's homes. That's the part that really creeps me out. Homes or, uh, you know, their safe space, whatever their safe space is. Um, right. The threat gains new power. Every level it gains at least access to one more power. The threat can push NPCs to engage against the, the PCs. Level four, threat again, gains another power. Threat can locate the PCs freely, regardless of where they are on the map. It can find out where they are. It can pop up anywhere. The threat can appear anywhere and to anyone in the town at the same time, but can only physically engage in one location. So, for instance, if the party does something foolish and splits up, the threat can appear to them, but can only physically attack in one location. When the threat level gets to five, the threat has access to all of its powers. The threat removes all positive NPC allies that the players might have already had and they could have counted on for support. Now they can only count on each other. The mundane threat, the Henrys of your game are now treated like supernatural threats. They can almost manifest. They can find you and such. So that's the threat level. I know it's it's a bit both vague and specific at the same time, but I think it kind of works. The threat is going to have this strategy always, which is isolate. The threat will always attempt to separate the group. The threat will get a die bonus equal to whatever for every member of the group not present. So let's say you're a group of seven, and there's two of you there in that scene the threat gets a plus five bonus because uh, five of the group members aren't there. So it's always going to go for the smallest group. And it right. benefits from that numerically and mechanically. So powers that Pennywise has that I thought we could sum up and actually make sense in a game. So first is illusion. Illusion will always give bonuses to the lure power and the repel power. We'll talk about that in a moment. Influence. Influence is one of those ones. Again, that's the thrall aspect that we're getting that's kind of cast a wide net over the town. The threat can always push an NPC to activate their fear, their desire, their darkest side. NPCs will ignore the obvious, turn a blind eye, add to the problem. And as the threat grows, its influence grows over the town. So each cycle that the threat completes, it starts at plus one on its threat level. So for instance, Pennywise, in its first manifestation, it's at threat level one where it begins. However, the second manifestation, it's already attacked the town. 27 years ago, they've already believed it's cursed. You've got your ironworks, you've got the black spot, whatever it is. Now it starts at a bonus threat level. In this movie, Pennywise is this is like the fourth or fifth manifestation of this uh, that we know of. It seems to indicate that there's a history much farther back. Isolation is a thing. It has ability to isolate. It has ability to lure. Because that's one of the tricky things is even though these kids should know not to go towards anything 
in this movie, there's always some kind of allure. Like, Richie should know not to go into the room to find the wanted poster, which I'll discuss in a moment, but he does. He should know not to go into the room filled with clowns and open up the coffin and pull back the... But he does. Like, so that part of that, there has to be a supernatural effect to do that. Because one, it's great narration and fun for the GM to come up with something like that. And it builds the fear. You can't be smart about this. This is an irrational level of fear. Uh, manifestation. The threat can create manifestations which remain even after it has left the influenced area. That is really referring to the bathroom scene with Beverly, right? Like, it kind of creeps me out more than almost anything else that the blood exists. Where did the blood come from? Why does it stay? Is Pennywise in that area? I don't think so. And I think it works really effectively as a metaphor and a bonding moment for everybody. But the fact that it's still there and it's actually blood and they have to clean it up. And my guess is like, all right, you clean it with a mop and bucket. What do you do with that blood in the mop and bucket? You pour it back down the drain because you know that stuff is just coming right back out. Anyway, and the last kind of power that it has that demonstrates is the ability to repel. That is to create an area of fear. PCs will roll against their fear level. And if they fail, they have to flee and their fear level goes up by one. So the idea is if it creates something scary enough, you'll run and then it separates you in the same way that we see happening to all of them but I'm thinking specifically in the scene with Stanley when they kind of get separated in the in the sewers. Good, yeah, good point. Yeah. All right. Uh, this is the thing that I would love to do. Um, there's a number of games where this, this would be appropriate, but um, before you start playing, get your players to send you uh, a picture of them when they were 12 and <laughs> create missing posters uh, and, and have them do this well in advance so they kind of forget about it so that when you're handing out props in the game... I was just about to say... If you ask me for that, there's no way in hell I'm sending it to you. And then it just dawned on me that you probably have a picture of me when I was in that age range. <laughs> I do. And the other thing is, listen, listeners to this podcast, I am not above calling your parents and having them send me pictures <laughs> so that when you when I hand you your prop in the game and you see your face on a missing poster, because I'm that guy, I'm that GM. Something else that I think is good. So I'm thinking of Sam and his t-shirts in Critical Role, where he has the, t the shirts made of pictures of the different cast members when they were younger or their headshots or stuff. And I'm thinking of you doing that now. <laughs> I'm going to take your word for it as I have not watched any Critical Role, though apparently today uh, Critical Role has announced that they are coming up with their own source books that may not be Dungeons & Dragons based. Um, and one is based yeah. for single sessions and and another one that's worked for campaigns and that ladies and gentlemen is a game changer but that's a different show to watch um for future sessions i really <laughs> love the idea that in a future session you're going to play your characters as adults and i really love the idea that and this is what i would do if you were going to play them as adults i would change the system completely to demonstrate a tonal shift so for instance if we start with kids on bikes and you were going to play as adults 27 years later. I'm going to play Powered by the Apocalypse. I'm going to do Monster of the Week because it makes more sense to think of your character in a, a way that's different. I mean, I know that's a lot to throw at you. That is uh, a ton I, I know of mechanics. That, I want It's a ton of mechanics, but I, once I started, I couldn't stop. And I feel like 
the amount of thought that I put into that is, again, typical of the kind of thing when I like something, I really try to go at it. So we need some set pieces, Drew. And the only one that comes to mind for me, well, actually, there's two that come to mind for me. Uh, and, and one actually isn't central to the movie. It's more drawing from the miniseries in the source book. Uh, the first is we need a layer. The, the yeah, enemy has yeah. a layer, and you mentioned that. In the case, if you're you're taking too much from, from It Chapter 1, then maybe it is in the sewers beneath the town, but it can be anything. Yeah, agreed. It should be something with a inherently evil feel to it. Mm-hmm. To, to properly yeah. represent this corrupting power that has that has held the town in thrall. I, I, I think we need that. And the the one that I would pull in is the library, because the library plays, especially as they become adults, and uh, as you talked about earlier, Mike becomes a librarian. It, the library is a much more central location in the, the other incarnations of this than it is in It Chapter 1, although we do have a scene with it, Ben in the library here. Yeah, and I think the other thing, too, is the library should be, if you're going to use that... You know, if, assuming you're not playing in a, a world where they can just simply search the internet, um, the library also will reward you for doing research into the history, especially if you're looking at something that's cyclical. And again, you know, if you are looking at like the third or fourth manifestation of your threat, don't copy it specifically and don't make them repetitive. So, you know, the black spot burning is very different from the explosion at the ironworks, which is very different from the disappearance of the town charter folks. Like, like all of those are very different, high body count, but it makes you think that the town is cursed, but it doesn't draw similarities. So if you're playing in a monster of the week style where you're trying to figure out what the threat is and what its powers are, looking at the history is going to let you know, well, it has enough to do some real damage to a large group, but it's not going to tell you it can manifest with your fears. So um, certainly. And the other set piece that I, I want, and, I, and I've specified this on several occasions, is get to know what your character's room looks like. We get a good shot of Bill's room, he has Dungeons and Dragons posters up on his wall. We get Beverly's room. It's very neat and tidy, and she doesn't have a lot of things. And a lot of what she has is referencing to fairy tales and fairy tale endings, which means she probably also is a romantic, but also is probably wishing for a, a way out of her situation. Um, we see Ben's room, where it's just Ben is letting you know who he is as a character and what his mechanic is, because he's got all of the useful history up there in a way that you would storyboard, say, a movie. Uh, ben, by the way, would have been really great for your group as far as that. Would you it say Ben's room has the right stuff? I would say that Ben's room has the right stuff. That's one of the things that I thought about as your truth <laughs> is you have to have New Kids on the Block references. But I feel like they've done all of them in this film. It yeah. is a really sweet and fun. It's like one of the few moments of levity in yeah. this film. Because once it gets going, it goes hard. We always talk about systems of play. So here are four systems that are not Dungeons and Dragons that you can on play. top of the systems he's already mentioned. <laughs> right. Always kids on bikes. One of the things that we haven't mentioned, and I, I feel really bad as I'm looking through my shelf um, at games, is the Junior Brave Survival Guide to the Apocalypse. It is based off of uh, a series of books. It is powered by kids on bikes, right? So it's pedal powered, but it's specifically scouts and it has combat rules. And so if you are looking for a more combat-centric, I, I think a lot of what... I think 2nd Edition is going to pull a lot of from, from this. The next is Savage Worlds. Savage Worlds, and I've mentioned this a couple of episodes ago, um, I'm playing in a Savage Worlds group, and um, I'm really enjoying the system. 
And there are ways, I've, I've fiddled around with it, that you can use, it's called a flaw, and I, I think being a youth is not a flaw, but it is something that negatively affects you. But as you grow to be an adult, you can get rid of that flaw and it switches over to some stuff. But I think um, Savage Worlds works really well. The combat system works really well. I think you can get enough kind of pros and cons for your character that you can create this group of losers really well. Clearly, clearly, Call of Cthulhu works really well. The problem with Call of Cthulhu is, in, in my opinion, if you're doing Call of Cthulhu well, the story is not going to have a happy ending because Lovecraftian horror is about losing to something that is greater than you or surviving just long enough to go insane. So here's my pitch for Call of Cthulhu. GM, run them in a Call of Cthulhu game that takes place in the same town as their, your future session so that when they play it, they are looking at the Call of Cthulhu game as one of the histories of the manifestation. And maybe, maybe do it after you've done your your kids on bikes version of this so that you would be aware of kind of like how the story ends. Now you can go back and see how it begins. Other things, I'm, I mentioned Harlem Unbound by Darker Hughes Studio. Um, there's also The Haunted West. The problem is the, the, the benefit of almost all of these systems are you you do need to play as kids i think that's really the important thing it really should be a truth you have to be a kid to fully appreciate this because there is a a level of growing up and facing your fears and facing death in the same way we have stand by me so that those are some systems of play (laughs) rafe is there anything else can we let these poor people go no we have one more thing We're, we're bringing back a little segment we've we've done here or there called question for drew Oh, uh, and yay. I love throwing these in because you just heard Drew go on for the last, you know, two hours about um, the game. <laughs> so I did. sorry. It was not when, two hours. When uh, your but, podcast is lo- possibly longer than the movie. The, the uh, Drew, Drew puts all this preparation into this. And then when I have question for Drew, I don't share the question with Drew ahead of time. So no. when, when you get an answer for this, you really are just getting pure thought process, no preparation, that kind of stuff. But I feel like there's a question for Drew that occurred to me while I was watching this this movie that I want to throw at you. Okay. Okay. Throw at me. We we talked about one of the truths is that there is power in working as a group. Mm-hmm. And the threat knows this. And in the movie, the threat then takes steps to split up the group. And that is important in the story development of this movie. Mm-hmm. How do you manufacture the party breaking up in a way that makes it feel organic and authentic? Okay. So this is almost impossible to answer without knowing the situation and the characters. But if you want inspiration, the very best source to turn to for this was mentioned in our last episode, and that is the card game For the Queen. And For the Queen is uh, a game in which you are on the same team, you are with the Queen, you are going on a quest with her, and as you draw cards from the deck, the card asks you a question that makes you question your relationship. And I would look, I'm sure there's a source out there, really, it's less than 20 bucks, just buy that game if you like storytelling. How do I do this? Well, I would look at the dance for each one of the characters, and I would look at each character's motivation as to why they're there. Same by Stand By Me, right? Like, they say they're going to the body, but some of them might be doing it for personal reasons, some of them might be doing it for fame, And then you have to invert that ambition to figure out why that benefits one but not the others. And that's where you get get the the Bill and Richie, like, is your life worth X? Now, 
if you as the game master have made it, if you don't defeat this evil, everyone in the town dies. You're all, you all have to band together because there's no alternative. Right. So what you need to do is make the threat personal first. The team never bonds fully until one of their members is taken. Until Beverly gets taken, again, huge spoilers, but until Beverly is taken, the team is separate. So you need to figure out a way that the personal quest of one runs the risk of hurting everybody, but that the risk of the thing, like like we could just leave or we could just wait for it to go 27 years, like that should always be an option. And that's one of the reasons why having the manifestation be cyclical really works because your players could be like, look, there's no guarantee we're ever going to play together as a group. Like we could just defeat this one thing. We could walk away from this. So you need to give an alternative to fighting this creature that is applicable and is good. Like it actually could be something like give them a reason. For instance, what if you're Eddie and when Eddie comes to the realization that he's been taking gazebos, um, causes, <laughs> which I a- loved that bit, especially <laughs> as a Knights of the dinner table, D and D type fan, the gazebos thing had me in right. stitches. <laughs> what if Eddie's mom suddenly has this thing where she decides I'm taking him out of, out of town. We're leaving. And there's right. your out. That character leaves. Now, again, it's not fun for the, the character, right? Like the, the, the PC, the player, doesn't really want to leave, but you are going to have to force their hand to figure out a way to get them to come back. So that's what I would do, is you have to create a threat that is threatening, but not all-consuming, where they only have one choice, right? So like they have to be able to come to terms to confront this threat for the greater good, but also they grow as an individual because they turn down an easier option. There always needs to be an easier, less scary option. That appears good and personal to that character. Okay. Does that work for you? Yeah. I didn't even consider that. And that's one of the tricky things in any role-playing game when you give your characters multiple... I don't like railroading my characters, my players, I should say, right? Like making them, you have to do this. That's why I actually don't do a lot of prep. That's why having truths in the game works really well for me is that I might play without any kind of prep and see where the characters are leading the story. The players are leading the story. And that works a little better with a free hand because if you try to rein them into this narrative that you've created, but you give them an option, they always have that risk of going, yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to go to the petting zoo. You know, that that petting zoo full of non-evil rabbits as opposed to the evil rabbits that I'm afraid of. That kind of thing. (laughs) I don't know why I'm going with bunnies, but... All right. That is a lot to chew on for this episode, but... uh... (laughs) so much i'm so sorry well join us in a couple of weeks for our it chapter one intermission where we will discuss our second opinions i've already written two things down just in the time that we've been recording that we either (laughs) missed or i need to rethink and what we might have missed about the film uh, the first time around we'll go over listener emails chat about what's grabbed our attention in crowdfunding and i get to pick my final kids on bikes film for us to tackle if you have opinions of your own about anything we've discussed today you can join in the conversation you can email us at the never say die podcast at gmail.com that's all shoved together no spaces you can find us on facebook at never say die cast it is a private group but we will let you in and we're on twitter still uh at never say die cast we don't say this enough but thank you to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song. And thank you to Megan Daly for the show's artwork. Yeah, we're really appreciative of that. And remember, even if 
this episode of the podcast does last the whole 27-year cycle, never say die. Never say die.